Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Show me the money. COP26 focuses on funding the push for net zero. Democrats' dilemma, a tough election night, means big questions for Biden's agenda and face-off. Facebook's ending its facial recognition operations. But what about Meta? It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to First Move, where going green means raising lots of green. We're all about climate ka-ching on today's show. Green energy commitments at COP26 have been ambitious. The money to pay for them will need to be prestigious. Will the financial community step up? Well, critics, they're justifiably suspicious. The world's finance ministers, though, are out in force today, including the UK Chancellor hoping to turn London into the world's first net zero financial centre to fund the green transition. Forget Brexit. Here comes the carbon exit. Great guests, just a cop, skip and a jump away here on First Move 2. The president and co-founder of ride-hailing app Lyft, John Zimmer, talks recovery and sustainability with a promise to be fully electric by 2030 on the platform. And from electric vehicle evolution to artificial intelligence revolution, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt has co-authored a new book on the promises and perils of AI. We'll also get his take on Facebook's metamorphosis and it's about face, about your face. For investors, a wobbly Wednesday. In the meantime, after the Dow topped 36,000 for the first time on Tuesday, lots to face up to. A Republican rebound in Tuesday's state elections in the United States and a Federal Reserve meeting to announce long-telegraphed tapering. What they say about raising rates, though, could be market-shaking. The news is non-stop. Let's get to COP. The money to get to net zero is there, says the UN's climate envoy. It's just not in the right places. The UK says to get there, we need a, quote, rewiring of the world's financial system. It's announced a plan to be the world's first net zero financial centre. And this will help align 40 percent of the world's financial assets with the one and a half degree Celsius goal, it says. And I'm grateful to say Bill Weir joins us now from COP26. Bill, great to have you with us again. Let's be clear, this is a huge amount of money that we're talking about that's now aligned on the Paris Climate Goals. We're talking, what, $130 trillion. The critical question is, is it aligned appropriately and is it aligned towards concrete projects? Because that's what we need. Exactly, Julia. You know, the devil is in the details, Mm -hmm. as the cliche goes. And you see a sign around some of the protesters here along the River Clyde and around the blue zone behind me that says net zero is not zero. And you get the feeling that these huge banks, what is it, 450 financial institutions in 45 countries might be able to justify a net zero financial portfolio 
by offsetting their investments in fossil fuel companies by maybe throwing some money towards renewables in some ways. Um, scientists would argue that won't work. Ultimately, the goal is for humanity to stop using fuels that burn and leak as soon as possible. And no country, the greenest from the brownest, is talking about that, about shutting off uh, oil wells and fracking sites. And so, you know, this is interesting. And then, of course, there's the pledge, $100 billion a year pledge from the rich countries to the poor countries to help them adapt. We got a little bit of the actually bucks behind that just now. First on CNN, we can report that Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader for the Democrats in the United States, is proposing legislation that would establish a $9 billion trust fund for the U.S. State Department to fund developing countries' reforestation or to help them stop deforestation. Of course, that has to pass uh, through a divided Congress, although Republicans have been behind a trillion tree program in the past. Uh, many on that side think that maybe we can plant our way out of this mess with enough trees. Scientists would uh, disagree with that. But it'll be interesting to see uh, Boris Johnson, who, of course, framed this whole thing as coal, cars, cash, and trees to bore down on where exactly that that cash is going and how. Yeah, I mean, you raised so many great points there. We had a taste of somewhere closer to effective zero rather than net zero during the pandemic. And huge swathes of the world had to stop in order to see the climate suddenly spring back to life and our seas to some degree clean up as well. Um, your point, I think, about fossil fuel investment is a really important one. I, I read a stat this week from the IMF that says $11 million a minute is spent in some way subsidizing fossil fuels around the world. If we could just harness a fraction of that, and I'm not saying that we don't need fossil fuels, at least in the interim while we transition, but if we could harness a fraction of that and redeploy it into renewables, um, some huge part of the battle's there, surely. Exactly. And, and those subsidies, there's, there's direct subsidies in countries paying oil companies to keep their prices lower or giving them tax breaks. But there's the indirect subsidies, which is the, you know, when you go fill up your, your car with petrol, as they say over here, if it said, uh, you know, the price per, per liter actually reflected the cost to human health, to premature air pollution deaths, to the cost on the environment, it would be six or seven times uh, what you're paying now. That's where the brunt uh, of the subsidies go. And that's the argument right now. If, if we're going to stop digging this metaphorical hole for humanity, the first thing we should do is stop paying the guys with the shovels. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Bill, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Bill, we are there. Okay, let's move on to the Democrats' dilemma. Less than one year into the Biden administration, the party suffers major setbacks in governor's races in Virginia and in New Jersey. John Howard, George Howard joins us live from the White House. John, my apologies there on the name. Um, a deeply demoralizing night, I, I think, for the Democrats. Can you be specific for our international audience? What you see as the policies that were being rejected here and to what extent what we saw in those two states is perhaps a blueprint for other states as we head closer towards the midterm elections? Julie, I think the biggest message of last night's results in both Virginia and New Jersey is that voters are unhappy with the persistence of the pandemic, which has disrupted American life in such profound ways, and the associated economic effects of the pandemic. So you're seeing in the uh, restart of the economy, it was slowed in the third quarter by the uh, uh, resurgence of the Delta virus. 
Uh, we've seen the um, inflation uh, significantly rise. Uh, some goods are harder to get and they're more expensive if you can get them. Uh, all of that, uh, we're down 10 million jobs uh, from the pre-pandemic. Um, and some people feel um, apprehensive about going back to work uh, because of the pandemic. And all of those things have weighed down President Biden's approval rating, taken him from above 50% to well below 50%, and made people think that the uh, change they thought they voted for in 2020 isn't paying off. And that was um, uh, to the disadvantage of Democratic candidates in both Virginia and New Jersey. Some of this Julia, is the cyclical tides of American politics. Of the last 12 elections for Virginia governor, for example, the party that did, was not occupying the White House has lost the race, or, or has won the race 11 of those 12 times. And that's because the party in the White House, the president in particular, becomes the embodiment of people's discontent. That's happened with Joe Biden. Uh, and that uh, uh, helped defeat Terry McAuliffe in New Jersey and made an extremely close call for Phil Murphy. Uh, I'm sorry, helped defeat Terry McAuliffe in Virginia and made for an extremely close call for Phil Murphy in New Jersey. So I guess it goes back to the question, John, uh, if you can tackle some of these issues that you're saying, the deep unhappiness, the discontent as we transition out of the pandemic, some of the issues, high energy prices, there's lots of things for ordinary people to be worried about, never mind some of the policies that we've seen, particularly from the more extreme left of the Democratic Party. Is there a warning in here for the Democrats? And also, I think for the Republicans, a message here about what the party can look like in certain states, at least, minus Donald Trump. Well, uh, certainly Donald Trump is a galvanizing figure for the base on both sides, and Democrats had hoped to use him in Virginia as a way to get their base out. The Democratic base is very demoralized right now. They're watching uh, Democrats in Congress fight uh, over the Biden agenda, and it seems to be stuck and moving uh, at a molasses pace forward. Uh, but I think what both the Biden White House and other Democrats uh, are going to take away from this is a, they need to pull together and enact uh, the Biden economic agenda so they can go to voters and say, here's what we've done for you. And secondly, uh, focus, refocus on getting the pandemic under control. If they can do that, if the, uh, and we're seeing some positive trends in terms of receding uh, uh, case counts and deaths and hospitalizations, if they can do that and the economy's in better shape in 2022, they'll have a much better shot at uh, uh, trying to hold the Congress. They're still uh, likely to lose it because that's what tends to happen in the first midterm of a president's uh, year. For Republicans, uh, clearly in Virginia, where there's a lot of suburban voters, Glenn Youngkin benefited by keeping Donald Trump out and trying to deflect the charges from uh, Terry McAuliffe that he was a um, uh, uh, Donald Trump in a sweater vest. Uh, the challenge is going to be when you get into congressional races, House and Senate races, can Republicans uh, pull that off in party primaries and elect candidates who are going to keep distance from Trump and then take the fight to Democrats? Not 100 percent clear they can do that, uh, but certainly uh, their a significant chunk of the party will uh, adopt that as their strategy and to focus on issues that are very much of concern to voters like education, like the economy. Yeah, a lot of self-searching, I think, to be done in the coming days. John Howard, thank you so much for that. Okay, let's move on. Facebook's face off. It's scrapping its facial recognition software, which identifies who's in photographs and videos. It's also wiping its database of a billion faces amid ethical and privacy concerns. Anna Stewart joins me now. And as we've said with Facebook, timing 
is everything. So perhaps no surprise at the timing on this, unless once again you read the print. And I see the name Facebook just a few days after they said that they're now going to be called Meta. So who exactly is backing away from facial recognition technology and will or will not will or will not, no, that doesn't make sense, will people's faces be deleted or not? I mean, the distinction now of the meta group, very useful, actually, because this relates to Facebook only, the Facebook platform. And this is one function that they use, which essentially identifies users and photos. If the user has actually opted into it, the wider meta group are not banning the use of facial recognition technology. And actually, they're heavily invested in it. They see it as very valuable. But they have made a distinction today saying that they see it increasingly as particularly valuable uh, when it operates privately on a person's phone. So when you use your iPhone and you unlock it, the data that is stored on the phone, not going to a server, obviously giving the user more control but also reducing that exposure for some sort of data breach in the future. Uh, The vice president of artificial intelligence said in the statement, the reason behind this uh, was that they need to weigh the positive use cases for facial recognition against growing societal concerns, especially as regulators have yet to provide clear rules. I thought this was so interesting because it's showing that they do balance the good and the bad impacts of their social media platforms. Uh, I'm not sure that is going to quash the huge concerns swirling around Meta right now in terms of uh, the impact their platforms are having on mental health and so on. Um, And once again, prodding regulators. They're saying, as ever, they will play by the rules. Someone needs to write the rule book and it's not going to be them. And with this sphere of biometric data, regulation would be very helpful. Julia? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's okay to get ahead of this before the regulations come into place when it doesn't really impact the financial performance of the company. A little bit of a different story when you're talking about... um, the social media platform itself, perhaps. Um, and very quickly, they have come under scrutiny and been fined in this sphere in the past by the FTC. Mm. Absolutely. And I think it's important to note that while there's been no data breach with their biometric data, there have been so many circumstances where social media platforms like Facebook have had uh, private information or public information scraped from them. So your profile photo, your name, where you live, your workplace, and that could be scraped by a third party company, uh, which has facial recognition software that can build up a database and sell it on to other companies or even law enforcement. So it's a really murky area. There's only actually so much that these big social media companies can do. And often it is dealt with jurisdiction by jurisdiction with civil lawsuits. And what's really needed, of course, as with all of these things, is a big international regulatory framework. Yeah, if only. Clearview AI, of course, that was the company, wasn't it, where they demanded that That they stop scraping pictures from from Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, so they they understand both sides of this story too. Um, Yeah, no more scrutiny, please, I think is the message, if we can avoid it. Anna Stewart, great job. Thank you. And in about 15 minutes' time, we'll talk more about artificial intelligence and other things with the former Google CEO, Eric Schmidt. For now, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A joint investigation by Ethiopia and the UN says all sides in the Tigray conflict have committed violations that may amount to war crimes. It was released a day after Ethiopia declared a state of emergency. Sources are telling CNN forces from the northern Tigray region are now on the outskirts of the capital. CNN's Larry Madoa joins us now live from Nairobi. Larry, great to have you with us. I want to hone in on this report. Atrocities may have been committed by all sides, but what they're calling for as well in this report is an independent investigation to find out exactly what happened. How likely is that investigation? 
It is unlikely because even this joint investigation by the UN and the Ethiopia Human Rights Commission, Julia, had some shortcomings. They were not able to go to all the locations they needed to go to. And this investigation covers only the period from 3rd November 2020 until the end of June this year when Ethiopia declared a unilateral ceasefire. That has since changed and Ethiopia is now actively carrying out airstrikes in Mekele, that is the regional capital of Tigray in the north and where they say they're targeting specific locations that are used by the Tigray People's Liberation Front. And that is something that the report's authors, the Human Rights Commissioner, talked about in her statement today. We are receiving continued allegations of serious abuses and violations of international human rights and international humanitarian law. There are reports of shelling and airstrikes resulting in civilian death, summary executions, large-scale displacement, and a worsening humanitarian situation. Julia, this conflict is not coming anywhere close to an end. If anything, it's expanding. Ethiopia yesterday declared a state of emergency nationwide because there are fears that the fighters from the north are advancing south towards the capital Addis Ababa, and so that's a major development. Also yesterday, there's a slew of news coming out of Ethiopia. The U.S. warned Ethiopia that unless it changes course in this conflict, it will be pulled out of a major preferential trade deal, the African Growth and Opportunity Act that allows it duty-free access, access into the very lucrative U.S. market. But Ethiopia says, we've done nothing wrong, and pulling us out of a Goa would hurt ordinary people, the men and women who defend, depend on leather or apparel experts mm -hmm. into the U.S., and not the people in charge of the conflict in the north. Yeah, another devastating blow for ordinary Ethiopians. Larry, great to have you with us. Thank you. In Australia, a missing four-year-old girl has been found alive after an extensive search that drew national attention. Police rescued Cleo Smith from a locked house Wednesday morning, 18 days after she vanished from a campsite. She's been returned to her family and a man has been taken into custody. Coming up after the break, giving Lyft a lift. As drivers make a post-pandemic return, the founder of the ride-hailing app joins to map out the platform's future. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. It's another important Fed day in the USA, a subdued stock picture. Meanwhile, as investors await the central bank's decision on trimming stimulus, plus any clues on when it might start raising interest rates. Patient Jay Powell is patiently awaiting his own news. Word from Jay Biden on his future. Biden saying Tuesday, this decision on a second term for Powell is coming, quote, fairly quickly. In the meantime, gains coming quickly for car rental firm Avis. Shares spiked 200% on Tuesday. After a big earnings beat, Avis also promising to offer customers more electric vehicle options soon. In the meantime, Lyft plotting a journey to recovery from the pandemic with strong earnings and shares are surging by a whopping 14% pre-market. Investors encouraged by news that drivers are returning to the ride-hailing app, jumping nearly 45% year over year. The company says it's now on course for sustained profitability. And like Uber, the company is headed for a fully electric fleet by 2030. John Zimmer is co-founder and president of Lyft, and he joins us now. John, always great to have you on the show. I think this is the kind of investor reaction that management always like to see after earnings reports have been released. At the core, it's, it's getting easier to attract drivers. Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, 45% uh, growth in active drivers year over year. Also on the rider side, we added nearly 2 million new riders to the platform uh, in the quarter. So feeling great about the quarter, feeling great about the recovery. 
Let's talk about the riders because you've also said as you look forward to what we're seeing in the fourth quarter, it's going to help service levels. It's going to mean reduced wait times. It's also going to mean lower prices. Can you give us a sense of how much lower? Can't give exact numbers. Hard hard to predict exactly. But the other thing I can mention on the rider side is that uh, since the pandemic started, we've added a lot of different price points. So where typically you would have just one choice with with lift per per class of vehicle, even within the same type of sedan vehicle that you might get, there might be three price points depending on how much uh, you're willing to wait or how fast you want to get the ride. And so what are you seeing in terms of the mix of people then? Are they making choices to wait longer in order to get a cheaper ride? How are you seeing that utilized? Yeah, it, uh, it depends on the time of day and the need for that use case. But yes, we are seeing uh, the ability for people to wait and save money, uh, which is the name of the mode is wait and save. Uh, you can save you know, something like $5 if you're willing to wait five to 10 minutes. Uh, and then you can pay a little bit extra uh, if you want to get picked up in two minutes. And so uh, it's both by an individual who is more price or time conscious, but also in the individual moment. Uh, if I need to get to work by a certain time or if I have a little more flexibility because I'm going out at night. Yeah, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong on some of the data, but as of two weeks ago, the price per mile driven for Uber and Lyft across the United States as a whole was up 26 percent versus 2019 levels and up 17 percent versus January. Can we suggest that we may be back to some degree of normality in terms of pricing by the end of the fourth quarter or is it too early pre- to predict? It, again, it's hard to predict. It's been really hard to predict. Uh, COVID throughout the last year and a half. <laughs> Very uh, true. But it is improving. <laughs> uh, it is getting to a better equilibrium. Uh, in addition to the prices coming down, again, we're offering multiple price points uh, to help as well. What do you, difference do you think the reopening of the borders is going to make? As you said, you're adding more active users at the same time as you're adding drivers. If you add some degree of tourism as well into that, um, that could also be a pricing pressure and a time pressure. Well, I think it would be overall positive uh, to be driving more demand. Again, the, the driver return is happening. Uh, every quarter it will get better and better. Uh, we looked back at some uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, some government data on labor in the hospitality and retail industry. And active drivers on our platform are coming back five times faster than labor in those other sectors. And so uh, I think we'll be able to uh, deal with and welcome the increased demand of tourism We are seeing that airport rides are up uh, 3x year over year. Uh, So things are coming back. uh, And overall, that's a good thing. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Uh, You announced last year that you're planning to have the platform all electric um, by 2030. Um, Can I ask what you made of the Tesla Uber Hertz deal, trying to make it easier for drivers to access at the same price that they would pay for a a gas car or a petrol vehicle, uh, an electric vehicle, a Tesla? Yeah, I mean, we we love seeing more electric vehicles come into rideshare. Again, we were the first company to commit to all electric by 2030. The reason we feel so confident in our ability to do that is because uh, we have uh, a portion of our business called FlexDrive, which to drivers, uh, we rent out vehicles uh, through a subsidiary. And we have a lot of control through that process to make sure that we can get those vehicles and get them at the right price. We've had electric vehicles in the fleet uh, for years now. Uh, and it works really well for, for our driver population because they utilize the vehicles more than an average person who's just using it for personal reasons. Uh, and so the payback on something like the battery is much better. 
Are you talking to Tesla? Are you talking to some of the big electric car makers to do these kind of deals? Though, because surely that's going to help. What you're saying you're going to achieve by 2030 is a huge feat. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we are talking to, to various OEMs uh, and also regulators to make sure that that policy supports uh, drivers uh, on our platform and not just drivers that can inf- afford a personal Tesla, uh, but oftentimes individuals with uh, with who don't have the right credit scores or things like that um, can can get cars through a rental program or through our rental program in, in a much easier way, which is important. You also, with drivers on our platform, have more miles driven per vehicle, and so the environmental savings are are bigger when you get EVs on rideshare versus uh, just with personal vehicles. And that's better for the climate, John. Great to have you with us. John Zimmer, co-founder and president of Lyft. Always great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. All right, coming up. Are we smart enough to outsmart artificial intelligence? I speak to the former CEO of Google and the head of MIT's Computing College about their new book, The Age of AI and Our Human Future. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and cheering, smiling faces there over at the New York Stock Exchange and U.S. stocks are up and running. And it's a cautious open after the Dow's first ever close above 36,000 in Tuesday's session. The S&P and the Nasdaq also hit record highs. The Federal Reserve, meanwhile, getting its last piece of economic data before its big policy announcement later today. U.S. private sector jobs growth rising by greater than expected 571,000 last month, encouraging news for policymakers as they get set to announce a pullback in pandemic support. And now to the real power of artificial intelligence. Here are just a few examples of what AI can do. It can win a game of chess using moves human grandmasters would never consider. It has discovered an antibiotic by analyzing molecular properties scientists didn't previously understand. It can defeat an experienced human pilot in simulated dogfights. The problems AI can solve are complex and sophisticated, but so too are the questions its use raises. Joining us now, Eric Schmidt, Chair of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence and former CEO of Google. We're also joined by Daniel Huttenlocker, inaugural dean of the MIT Schwarzman College of Computing. And they are both co-authors, along with Dr. Henry Kissinger of the new book, The Age of AI and Our Human Future. Eric, Dan, fantastic to have you on the show. I just want to set the scene first and foremost, because that's where the introduction took us and where the book begins on the capabilities of AI software today. And it begins with a chess game where the software didn't rely on any human experience or knowledge of strategy. In the space of four hours, it taught itself to win and it confounded grandmasters. That's the kind of power that we're talking about, Eric. Most of us did not think this was possible. Yeah. They fed the rules of the game to the computer, and in four hours, it could beat every human. It learned not only the rules, but also the strategies. And it learned all the strategies that human had developed in a, in a few thousand years. What's interesting about it is it also developed some new strategies that humans had never invented. And that's pretty powerful. I mean, it's proof, effectively, that AI is no longer constrained by the limits of of human knowledge. In our book, Dan Dan and Dr. Kissinger and I basically say that this is a new epoch in human experience, that hundreds of years ago, there was something called the age of faith. And in the age of faith, you basically talk to God. 
And the age of reason replaced it, which is how we have critical thinking, how we invented the future that we've had for the last few hundred years, which has been extraordinary in terms of its progress. We argue that the arrival of a new kind of intelligence will be both our partner, but also the bane of our existence in the sense that it will really drive a completely different interpretation of how people think and how they live. I mean, you described it as a, a rival potentially in the book too, which I found fascinating. Dan, come in here because it's multidiscipline too. And I just want to emphasize the point further because this blew my mind as well. And again, I, I mentioned it in the introduction, finding um, an antibiotic for a drug-resistant bacteria that scientists simply didn't understand the decisions that the AI software is making. We're, we're effectively seeing um, the transfer of judgment from human beings to a machine in the outcome here. And it was happening incredibly fast, too. It's unlike anything we've seen before. Dan, that's to you. Yes, so AI perceives the world, uh, we're starting to see perceives the world in ways that are different from the way humans perceive the world. And that both offers tremendous opportunity for new discovery, um, chess, antibiotics, uh, things that humans have been studying for decades or even centuries and haven't made progress on. But it also can pose challenges because if something perceives the world differently than you do, you know, we all know people who perceive the world differently than we do. Uh, it's very important to understand the nature of those differences. And because AI is new and something we've uh, really just created recently, we don't understand how to handle AI and perceive uh, the way that it perceives the world differently than we do. And, and this is some of the questions that you ask in the book is, um, how will being a human change? What does AI-enabled war look like? Um, what advantages will it create? What disadvantages will it create? And I go back to the example of AlphaZero and some of the decisions it was making. It was choosing to sacrifice a queen for the greater good of, of winning the game overall. And again, that confounded the grandmasters. And, and Eric, I'm sure this comes from you with your experience with um, the National Security Commission on AI. What if we got to a situation where AI was saying we can sacrifice 3,000 lives in order to save 3 million lives and says to whoever's in charge of this and you have three minutes to make a decision? That kind of power, those kind of questions, profound ethical questions were to be asked. The three of us fundamentally believe that these questions are not being asked correctly. Right. So you have a combination of this new intelligence, which is not the same as human, but human-like, organized around objective functions, as, as Dan likes to say. It's all about the objective function. What is this thing learning? But you have a compression of time. And we're extremely worried that the compression of time will cause people to become dependent on these systems, which t at least today are imprecise, emergent, still learning, still changing. Do you really want that kind of a profound decision to be made by a machine? I don't think so. I don't think we do. Um, at a minimum, we need to start discussion about the most extreme cases. Uh, the most obvious one is essentially launch on warning. It's like the Dr. Strangelove scenario mm. where uh, you know uh, they think a launch has occurred and so they guarantee a response even if the launch doesn't happen. That kind of stuff can create incredibly dangerous and incredibly destabilizing national security scenarios. But you can't, you can't look at this as one nation. 
Eric, either. I mean, whether or not the United States or Europe can overlay a set of ethics. And I know you have questions about the way that, that Europe's looking to regulate this, too. But um, what about for North Korea? What about for China? What about Russia? Because you certainly stepped forward in that whopping great report. And I had a look through it last night, 756 pages, I believe. And one of the things was saying, look, we can't ban the development of AI um, infused weaponry because it can be a defense as much as it is an, an offense. We looked at this really carefully. And what we concluded was that if an improvement in war, if that's a correct term, is to be more precise, that is less collateral damage, these will be very good. One of my uh, military friends explained to me that the majority of the deaths in these kinds of situations are from target misidentification. In other words, they get the wrong group. We've seen this most recently in Afghanistan. Um, so there's hope that these technologies will allow war, which is never good, to be precise with as little um, essentially collateral damage. The question to me um, is, what do we do about these extreme cases? In our report, what we say is we would like Russia and China to say clearly that they're going to only launch nuclear weapons under human command. That doesn't seem like an unreasonable request, given the dis disruptive nature of those weapons. How do we tackle this, Dan? Because you're going to be in charge of teaching, promoting, helping people coming into this industry because they're excited and they see something new and something exciting that is going to be a game changer. I kind of you also feel very passionate that this is bigger than the invention of the Internet, bigger than social media in many respects. And in the book, you guys talk about needing CEOs, scientists, strategists, statesmen, philosophers, clerics to come together to work out how best to understand, to develop, to regulate this. Dan, what does that look like in practice? So as, as we say in the book, we really call for a, a new ethic, a new philosophy underpinning artificial intelligence, much like when you look at the transition that Eric talked about from the age of uh, faith to the age of reason. We're now moving to an age where there are faith, reason, uh, and AI. In that era four or 500 years ago, there were huge advances in philosophical understanding. And those philosophers were people who often uh, came from other walks of life. They weren't professionally studying philosophy. And that's one of the things that we really look for going, future, going forward in the future here over the next few decades, is how do we build new underpinnings for AI that are informed by people's understanding of domains, not just engineering, not just business, not just computer science, not just foreign relations, not, not just the military, mm. but from everywhere, but all of us looking at the set of philosophical issues that are posed by the fact that there's a new type of intelligence there that we don't fully understand. Can I add that, uh, yeah. can I add that, that Dan and I disagree a little bit on this? I think that we have very little time. Dan is a bit more cautious in the claims here. Okay. But I would tell you that there is massive investment in these technologies around the world massive investment in, in the United States. In Dan's program, which is sort of one of the best programs in the world of AI, essentially everybody is majoring in machine learning and AI and computer science now. There's this <laughs> wave coming. It's a, and the wave is coming in China. They produce more PhDs, in many cases better PhDs than in the West. There's enormous investment in the tools that we describe in our book. We've got to get our act together now. How long do we well, have? One, one thing that's very Eric. encouraging in that, 
Dan, I know you're positive, but I want Eric to tell us how long we've got and and what the consequences are of not regulating this in your mind properly. And then, Dan, you can come in with a positive finale. Certainly. (laughs) Uh, I think we have 10 years and we need to spend the next couple of years deciding what we want. And then the decisions within the next five years will shape the outcome in 10. Okay, Dan. How long do you think And my think positive five was going to be on more on Eric's timeline, which is, I, I think, one of the really encouraging things today uh, is many students are very interested in the social and ethical uh, questions and implications and responsibilities of deploying artificial intelligence. And so we get the smartest young people today looking at these problems and also having depth of technological expertise. Uh, and we see this at MIT um, and we see this elsewhere at other institutions. And yeah, I think the smart young people can do a lot in a short time period. You're our hope. Eric, I have one more minute. Without appropriate regulation, will AI be a net positive or a net negative? And could AI be used as the solution? Could AI find the solution to regulation that we've failed to do in things like social media? And you literally have one minute to answer. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard to tell the, the AI what to do until we can decide what we want in, our, in terms of the outcomes. And we don't all agree. But it doesn't I need us. I think it's, it's pretty clear that uh, AI will be regulated in some form. It's clear that some of the worst case scenarios, uh, I'll give you an example, Facebook yesterday, I guess I should call yeah. it Meta, uh, is deleting all of its face data. That's a sort of, and Dan likes to say, that's a very blunt decision. We're getting out of that business because it's too complicated for us. There are too many issues. And I think you're gonna see more of that. We need to focus on the most extreme cases that produce really negative outcomes and get ahead of ourselves in terms of what we want as a society. That's not a decision that should just be left up to the tech people. Yeah, guys, we have to end it there. Great to chat to you. Please come back and we'll continue this conversation soon. Eric Schmidt and Dan Huttenlocker there, co-authors of The Age of AI and Our Human Future. Thank you. And that's for the, sh- for the show. So- Stay safe. Marketplace Asia's next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.